Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Welcome everybody, it's very nice to see you all, um, or we know you're there, we can see, you, see your name, but it's a shame you're not in person. But it's some thanks for spending time with us today and for joining our Practice Manager webinar from um, Wessex LMCs. So we've got um, Lisa Harding and Michelle Lombardi, our two directors of primary care um, with us today and I'm Louise Greenway, Director of Education and we've just been putting these, uh, these webinars on for a little while now and they still prove to be useful. We did one on CQC a couple of weeks ago um, on the 3rd of August and over 50 of you joined the call live and then I was just looking, looking before we came on air just now and over 200 people have downloaded it to listen to later so it is still useful and I'm glad that you're finding this helpful and we will continue to do so as long as you're finding it um, useful to listen to. So I'm going to hand straight over to um, Lisa, and you're going to talk about 111, I think, Lisa. I can do. I think it was going to be Michelle, but that's absolutely fine. Oh, well, that's messed up so straight away. That's, no, 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 it's absolutely fine. Of you about but but Michelle might chip in if there's anything that I missed. So I think probably um, most of you will be aware that there has been a system, a, a, a cyber attack, um, on a third-party software supplier um, that has implications for another number of systems across the health sector, um, including Adastra um, and uh, Care Notes, to, to name but two. Um, included in those services, NHS services that have been affected, is NHS 111 because they use software um, that has been taken offline, which is impacting on 111 referrals to GP practices. Um, to GP access hubs, pharmacy and dental, as well as mental health services. So it's quite a significant issue that's been running on now, I think, for probably a couple of weeks at least. Um, so during this time, there's been an increase in calls um, there from patients to practices um, and practices are being asked, and I appreciate this is a big ask, to try not to refer patients to 111 at the moment where they possibly can avoid it um, and to see if they can try and manage those patients locally. Um, we understand that there is work ongoing. I know the ICBs are aware of this and it's high on their risk um, matrix matrices. So um, there is a lot of work to try and resolve this. We haven't heard anything as yet around the timescales for resolution, but it's just to alert people if they're not aware um, and to say that we'll keep close eye on it and send out any updates as we see them. Thanks, Lisa. That's so no, no time scale at the moment. We just have to yeah. No, unfortunately not. That's fine. Thank you, Lisa. Um, Michelle, I think we're having to come to you next. Yeah, it's me next. I'm going to talk a bit about um, deceased patient records and um, access to medical record requests. So I think people may be aware that this was something that came in, um, supposed to have come in on the 1st of April this year and was a contractual change. However, there's been some time that PCSE needed to put various processes in place to make sure that this process could work. So we've been notified that from Monday the 1st of August, so a couple of weeks ago, PCSE will, will no longer be processing access to health records applications and that these will now be re, now be a requirement for GP practices to um, undertake these. I think previously building up to this, a lot of the requests were starting to come through to practices. Um, and I think the BMA guidance was that actually practices, if you receive a request from a family, you do need to undertake these um, and provide the information that you have. However, this is now fully transferred to general practice. I think um, linking on to that, if there is an issue where you can't find the health record for the patient um, and it's, you haven't got it accessible, then you need to contact PCSE. And this would be in the form of either a subject access request and access to health records 
or an information disclosure. And there's various um, timings associated with those as to how long they will respond to you. There is some guidance on PCSE's website in relation to that, which I'm sure we'll link in with this podcast. I think the other um, element just to mention, so uh, from the 1st of August, practices can stop printing off the electronic patient records and that PCSE are able to continually um, continue to receive the Lloyd George envelopes as was before for deceased patients. There is one exception, or there's a couple of exceptions to the printing off electronic records. One is where the patient, where patients last practices closed down. So um, where, where the practices Close down or where an individual was deregistered, PCSE will continue to respond directly to these um, requests. The only time in GP practice we will be required to print digitalised records is where their practice is due to close, and in which case they should print any records of patients who have died from the 1st of August 2020 to date of the practice closure. I believe also um, where you're suspending a patient's record, so if they're moving abroad, if they've um, gone into prison, um, then actually those are the other options um, other areas that you would need to also print the patient's records and send to PCSE as you would do now. And I think that was it for that element. Thank you, um, Michelle. And we're going to put some information on our website, aren't we, with a link to PCSE. So we will definitely do this. Um, so we just had um, a cu- couple of things about that. For clarity, would we as the GP practice need to request any of the missing info from PCSE? we would be acting as a third party in this scenario. So shouldn't we be exempt from this? No, I think I do think it is the practice is my understanding. I will just double check that. But I think it is the practice, not the patient, as you as they're coming to you to ask for that um, information. Okay. And Lisa's nodding. So I think Lisa. Think so too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So. Um, thanks, Ben, for that one. So, Susanna, I think the issue is that often the person requesting is not next of kin and the requester does not want to complete the paperwork to prove that they are next of kin or stroke have no power of attorney. This can take a long time to manage. I think there, there's some really good BMA guidance on access to health records for deceased patients because I think one of them is the next of kin or um, the executor of the estate. But if the patient, sorry, if the family has got um, a claim on the uh, patient's estate, then actually that's also another element as to when they can access records. I'm looking to Lisa, who's the governance, who's our governance lead, but there are three instances and we can, I think it'd be important for us to ensure that that information is clear when we put it onto our website of how, of when family members or or, um, people associated with the family may want to access deceased patient records. Uh, And there's a, there is almost a checklist that you could work through to make sure that they meet that. And if you're ever unsure, please do come to us. We can help. Your DPO potentially would be able to help with this or your medical defence organisation. Always, if in doubt, ask us and we can help yeah. you with those. And just to, to add to that, there's a useful BMA guide which sets out who has, um, who has right of access uh, to those records, which in- includes executive of the will, um, somebody who has a, a claim. But th- there's quite a bit more detail in terms of the process that you need to follow, etc. Um, so as Michelle said, always good to talk to your DPO or medical defence or come to us. Fine. So we'll make sure we've got the BMA information, PCSE information, the, the links to on what website. Jenny Dock just put in um, something to PCSE has have some really good Q&As for access to records and good for us and our patients about 
what our and their responsibilities are. So thank you for that for then um, Jenny will put on that. Um, so prospective actor to notes, two questions, please. A SMIS, I think that might be EMIS practice. It might be rather than SMIS, that might be just a typo, who ha is, an an, is an early adopter, has said that patients have access to patient tasks, but this has not been in any of the training. This is quite a big deal. Do we know anything about that? Can we have any answers to that? Lisa, so we can contact the national team so that I'm really happy to pick that one up. I'll email them. I thought that they didn't have access to patient tasks, so that's quite worrying. So I'll pick that one up. I do remember when we back. had discussions, that was a big, we, we, we did discuss mm. that with them didn't they, about tasks. So it's a good point, Jenny, yeah. we'll bring that up. Um, second question, can we do a, oh, second question, can we have to do a lunch and learn on this so we can deliver to our staff? We will try, Jenny. The difference, the, what we do with our lunch and learns is that we're trying to have um, an expert writing a package for us and a script. And the idea is that you or some another member of your team can deliver that to all the staff. The difficulty is with particularly anything to do with access records, there are so many pitfalls, it's very difficult. And I wouldn't want to put the perhaps manager in the position of saying, they are the authority, they know all the questions and all the answers. So we'll certainly, we've got an information governance lunch and learn, which but we can certainly do more on that. Um, so we'll look at that, Jenny. So thank you for that um, good suggestion. Mel has said, so we need to print for all embarkation patients, do we? Let me check that. So I'm just re-looking at the notes that have come through around uh, medical records and how, when you print. Let me just check because there's a number of things that that could then apply to. So like you say, if they move you know, move to a different country, let, let me just check it. I think um, we need to be really clear on when you need to print the records out. Okay, and Mel said NOK, which I guess is next of kin, is not automatically able to access the records. They have to be an executor of the will. The LPA dies with the patient query. Lasting power of return. So I think that's correct. So there okay. are, as Mel says, there are certain individuals that do have unqualified or have a right of access. And I think you're right in the next of kin is, is not automatically able to access the records. Um, and obviously, um, confidentiality, the duty of confidentiality persists after death as well. Um, but it's all in that BMA guidance, as I say. So that, that does have a really good summary. So um, thanks for the question, Mel. And Susanna has come back. Yes, LPA does go with the death. So I think we've, we've got a resolution to that. And Mel's come back. Can you check for cross-border moves to, so she's talking Wales, Scotland. Yep. Um, within um, within the UK. Doug has said, if we do not have all the information, we are not the data controller, anything held by PCSE, why are we then having to take on this extra work? I think that's partly down to the contract negotiations, which obviously weren't terribly satisfactory this year. So acknowledge we're not particularly content. I think they did include um, uh, an additional, Michelle, was it 20 or 30 million within the global sum around SARS to um, acknowledge the additional workload, um, but that won't be the case for next year. So yeah, it's not terribly satisfactory. Yeah. So um, quite a few questions, flurry questions on that. It's always the same thing that people worry, worry about a lot. So thank you for your questions. I think that's been really helpful, Lisa and Michelle, going through that. And we'll put the links to the um, websites that we mentioned on our website with the, um, with the recording of this podcast. podcast recording. So Lisa, I think we're going to DBS now. We are. So this is just a, qu a quick update around the DBS service that um, we provide. So I think a lot of practices use the DBS service and it's really just to give everybody advance notice that from the 1st of September, 
this year any new DBS applications that are initiated will no longer be eligible for a refund. So, so we're just asking people to be, I'm sure that you are, but be absolutely confident that you do need to initiate that DBS check before you, you do so. Um, there will be a, a, a few exceptions to that rule, however. Um, for instance, if a duplicate has accidentally been created by the applicant or for whom the, the DBS is required. So I think that sometimes does happen. We can probably um, process a, a, a refund for that one. Um, and if we haven't initiated too much work, um, we could probably do that. Um, we do have to, unfortunately, because of a third party supplier, we do have to make a £10 um, administration fee, which would be taken off the refund. So we've got information around that on our website and we'll put it into the newsletter this week as well but it was just really to make people aware just a heads up for that thank you Lisa. Yeah. um i think you're going to carry on now um nhsd bulletin yes people might have already seen this um around the deadline for the withdrawal of ability to um up upload html files to um, ers so i understand that this ability um, is being withdrawn from the 12th of august so you should only upload supported file types there is advice on how to save unsupported files such as html and that's on the nhs di digital website and i'll try and put the link onto the chat or the q a rather in a moment and there is also an email for any queries so i'll I'll include that on the, um, the Q&A as well in a moment when um, we've just moved on to the next topic. Um, the other thing that I wanted to, to mention around GP Connect and the summary care record um, was that um, any mentions of the um, control of patient information COPI notices need to be removed from privacy or transparency notices as those temporary changes to the GP Connect and summary care record additional information requirements have changed in response to the changes in the COVID um, pandemic. Um, so it may well be that your DPOs have already given you the heads up on that and perhaps given you some amended wording, if not probably worth a conversation with them, but just to make people aware of that. Thanks, Lisa. That's always helpful. Um, I think we're going to go on to, as flu is approaching, um, PGDs. Um, Michelle, they're going to lead us to that one. Yeah, so I, just a brief, uh, brief one on this topic. So just to highlight to everybody, there has been some changes to the PG, some PGDs um, that you will be using. And we would suggest going onto our website. We will put the links with our with our podcast so that you could go and see them. I believe that DTAP, IPV, HIB, and HEP B have been updated. TD, IPV, and also smallpox. So those are just a few of the ones. So it's worth just going in. Um, checking with your nursing team that these have been reviewed, updated and um, put in place. Lovely. Thank you, Michelle. I'm going back to a question we had before about lunch and learn. We will be doing a lunch and learn on flu. Um, so that can be sort of, which we've done before. So just that can be a, just a useful resource for you to update your staff if you choose to use it. Um, Lisa, we're just going back just on the previous item. Um, have other suppliers been informed of the HTML changes? We still receive various reports as HTML. These are converted to a readable format as part of the filing to DocMan. But if HTML has been phased out, would it be beneficial if the other suppliers change their processes? I can double check that. I don't know. I can pick that up. Then if you've got a couple of, of providers that you're aware of, then I can perhaps go to them directly and just double check. And that would give us a bit of an idea about whether people are aware. So really happy to pick that one up. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Um, something about gloves, I think, next, Michelle. 
That's right, Louise. So this is something that was in the NHS England Primary Care Bulletin and particularly around PP and glove usage. So it was really just a highlight if you've got any, if you're particularly passionate to help the environment and improve your green credentials, um, just to highlight that sometimes uh, gloves can be overused and that there's a new um, course available for um, your team if you would like to access that, which is the non-sterile non disposable glove use course. We are just going to have a look at it to see um, what it entails and if there's any costs incurred. But it was really just a highlight if you wanted um, to have a look at that to, uh, to just to be aware of it. Thank you, Michelle. Yes, we'll have, I'll have a little look at the um, what's involved in, in that course. Um, the personal demographic service, Lisa. So this is just about some changes to the PDS service, personal demographic service. So going forward, when PDS is notified of an address change, I understand it'll identify whether or not this is an actual address update. This means any change to the substance of the data in the address, such as a change of postcode, um, if it's an actual update, it will be applied as normal. However, if the update doesn't contain any actual changes to data, such as when all that is being changed is the casing of the address lines, PDS will filter this update out and keep the address as it is. Um, apparently, these changes will affect updates coming from all systems that integrate with PDS. The filtering is designed to be silent, meaning it will not adversely affect systems that integrate PDS. Um, we, we're told there are some benefits around this and that the changes being made after a high volume of no real change updates um, were being submitted to PDS. Um, so in terms of benefits, they're saying that the address history on PDS records will be cleaner, as all address updates will be substantive updates, and clinical systems with the local version of a record will have a lower number of needless synchronizations to perform with PDS. This will reduce the administrative burden for health and care professionals. So we really look forward to that. Um, so there we go. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that, Lisa. Marvellous. Thank you very much. Um, I think we're moving on. We've got a question that we'll come back to later. We'll come at okay. the end. It's not related to our particular agenda at the moment. Um, so I think we're going to go to patient list reconciliation. I think Lisa was staying with you for that one. Yes, I'm, I'm afraid. Yes, I'm afraid so. So NHSE and I has asked PCSE, I'm sorry about this, to recommence the data quality checks on GP practice patient lists, including reconciliation of practice um, list sizes etc you'll remember it was paused during covid um, but it started again on the 1st of august um, so i think that there has been some communication to practices um, so hopefully you will be aware of this um, but pcse plan to start a new 12-month cycle so a third of practices will be contacted over the next 12 months that have not previously had their reconciliation request um, concerns have been raised with NHSE because it's a bureaucratic burden for practices and we know how busy everybody is at the moment. Um, BMA has raised it directly. Um, they've asked that the process be delayed until practices are, are able to really sort of cope with this additional administrative burden. Um, unfortunately, whilst NHSE have acknowledged and considered the points raised by the BMA, um, they've declined the request, uh, stating that the process will only affect a small proportion of practices nationally and that there's never an ideal time to start the process. Uh, so I'm really sorry. Um, there's probably not a huge amount we can do to influence that. But I guess if there's a, an individual issue with a practice, we're always happy to pick that up on somebody's behalf. 
Thank you, Lisa. It's just a, one more thing to do, isn't it? Yes. Um, okay. Um, and I think you're just going to have a quick update on pay transparency. Yes, a slightly better sort of temporary um, update from me on, on this. And again, um, BMA has um, just uh, updated us around this uh, slightly controversial issue that I'm sure people will be aware of in terms of the GP contract regulations. Um, the updates in April of this year removed the requirement for individuals within the scope of the general practice pay transparency transparency provisions to make a self-declaration of their 2021 NHS earnings by the 30th of April of this year. Um, so at the moment, individuals are not required to take any action in, in relation to their 2021 earnings. Um, it, it does remain part of the current regulations. However, DHSC has confirmed that commissioners should not enforce the requirement at this time. Um, currently, individuals in scope of the regs introduced last October will need to make a declaration of their 21-22 earnings next April, i.e. April 23. Um, but let's just watch the space and, and wait for a bit more guidance from the BMA, but you, you don't have to do it for this previous year, 2021. So I hope that helps a little. Yes, a bit. Yes, that's a little bit of good news, isn't it? Just one um Period that's coming, um, Lisa, about the patient reconciliation. Um, Wendy Fielder, will they accept requests from university practices? Are we going to be hugely busy? Yes, university practices. Again, I think potentially um, we possibly need to wait until you get notification, but we can pick that up and see whether we can do any local negotiation. I don't, I can't promise anything, but we're very happy to try. Okay, so do you want, is that something we can do in advance or wait if, if when disaster? I think we can make the case. Um, I think, I think you know, everybody's incredibly busy, but, you know, we know around the time in university practice is a huge influx. So um, yeah. we can make the point and we can feed that back up GPC as well to make sure that they've raised it too. I, th I think the other thing to add that they, the PCSC didn't get the time frame right for response. I think they, they gave practice really short time frames to look at this. When actually, if you look at the regulations, there was a longer time frame. So we need to make sure that whatever's released from PCSE is actually correct and is in line with regs. So we need to possibly raise that with the BMA or, or, you know, or when this information comes out. That sounds helpful. Thank you, Michelle. Um, just some other comment about pay. Um, DDRB recommendation of 4.5% pay uplift. I know previously when the recommendation for staff was 2.1%, you suggested 1.8% was the uplift and the rest was on for on costs. Do you have a stance on this recommendation, especially given no contract uplift for this? So that's in relation to the DDRB recommendation of 4.5% pay uplift. So I think, um, and Michelle might want to add further, I think this is a really difficult one because it, I think from a partnership perspective, it's really difficult and we absolutely have huge sympathy around this. Um, from a sort of con in contractual employment perspective, the DDRB are recommending that the pay uplift be backdated to the 1st of April this year. Normally, the BMA encourage, encourage practices to apply the pay uplift. They're obviously in a difficult position because they represent both salaried GPs, but also partners. Um, so that is a really difficult one. And I think you probably also have to refer back to the individual's contract of employment. However, that said, within the salaried, the model salaried handbook, there is a requirement that the DDRB uplift is applied. So you, you need to double check to see whether that's in. 
And even now, it's a contractual requirement in virtually all contracts, I think, that the those those terms be offered and they're certainly no less favourable. So it's probably something you need to go back and check with the individual's contract for employment and possibly get some HR advice if, if you're not going to apply that. So I think the only thing I would add to that, Lisa, is I think the 4.5% is the pay uplift and on costs are on top of that. Yeah. I don't I think it's different to the 2.1% where it was the practice um, could include the on costs. I think the 4.5% and I think my understanding, and I'm looking to Lisa and Louise, I think our, our understanding is that it is 4.5% on costs are on top of that, unfortunately, so. which is even tougher for practices. Yes. Thank you. That has been useful. Um, yeah. Difficult, isn't it? Um, let's move on to um, Michelle. I think the final sort of um, agenda item is just on um, the transgender and non-binary guidance. Yeah, so it's really just to highlight to practices that we've recently updated um, our care of transgender and non-binary patients in primary care webpage. Um, it, we've had a number of queries over the last few weeks in relation to this, and there's various pieces of information on there that's useful to be aware of, particularly around prescribing, uh, screening, when patients request change of names, change of medical records. So it's worth just having a look at those. That we've, up, as I say, we've updated it in light of the queries that we've received, and some uh, changes that have happened over the last few weeks in relation to that. So it's worth having a look, and we can make sure we pop the link with the podcast. Yes, and we did run some excellent training sessions that some of you may have been to on um, just awareness for anybody in general practice um, with um, patients from transgender and non-binary. We ran LGBTQ+, but sadly, that particular charity that ran the excellent training with us, they haven't got capacity to do it anymore. So we are trying to find somebody else. We do know it was a really, really helpful course. Um, I went on it and it's very, very good for um, just articulating help and just giving best possible service to um, to all our patients. So I just think we'll, we'll do more of that. I know there's a clinical side of it completely differently as well, but for everybody's awareness, it was very helpful and we'll try and do more of that because we know that you're getting more and more requests all the time. So we come to the end of our official agenda items, but we've just one query that's come in, um, which is not related to our agenda. So do we have any advice on the letters patients are receiving from the police saying that their firearms application hasn't been processed during the change in form from November 2021? We've completed the applications, but patients don't have a valid firearms licence in place because obviously their bit they haven't done um, in the right way. Do we know any more about that? I know our sort of joint chief executive, Andy Perbick, is sort of the expert on firearms for our organisation. Lisa and Michelle, are you able to comment on that? We probably need to check with Andy. I know that the, the police regulations changed, didn't mm. they, last mm. year? So Andy's done quite a bit of work and linked, I think he's linked with the individual constabularies, constabularies across the patch and the BMA. So probably to be safe, we probably need to check with Andy and perhaps come back next time. And So I know they've said that this anonymously, which is absolutely in your in your gift to do, and that's absolutely fine. But if you let us know where you are, it's actually quite helpful for us because I think the different police had sort of different regulations. And, and I know Andy was working with the, all the, all our different areas. So if um, whoever's put that in, if you're happy to tell us which practice you're from, we can then isolate the area. And then I think Andy might be able to give you a little bit more accurate um, response um, if possible. Thank you. Okay, so I just wanted to mention that our next podcast, oh, Natalie, thanks, it was from you, you didn't mean to send it anonymously, fantastic, we will pick that up, thank you. Um, so our next um, 
practice management webinar is going to be on cleanliness. There are new regulations that have come out, and the new, the new ones for primary care specifically have come out. We've got our new um, practice nurse advisor, Zoe Tobin, will be joining us. So that's the 31st of August, Wednesday, 1 p.m. Do bring a nurse along if you want to, and, and it might be helpful for you to sit alongside and um, look at this together. If you don't want to, that's also fine. Um, but we just thought it might be an opportunity. We'll certainly make sure that's the first part of the um, of the podcast, of the webinar. And we've got an expert, an infection control expert from one of the R areas coming to talk through this with Zoe. So hopefully that'll just be practical, useful, helpful for you. But if you'd like to be one of, the, one of your nursing team with you, that also might be quite helpful for both here at the same time and ability to discuss it then back later in the practice. So that's um, 31st of August, 1 p.m., practice manager update webinar just like this one and we will do it as the first gender item okay something else has just come in so are we aware of any pcse delivery issues with blood supplies um that's a bournemouth query have we got any no, no sorry Fiona, we haven't got any information about that um is there anybody we can ask or suggest fiona's contacts for that michelle do you want to give us a bit more do you want to contact us fiona and we'll yeah. um, we'll raise it with the the ICB. So whether or not that's just like an, an initial issue, issue or whether that's more of a permanent thing, let us know and then we can help you. Um, unless anybody wants to put in, it was in the bulletin. Oh, so it's the Dorset bulletin. So I don't know, do, do you get the Dorset bulletin, Michelle? We don't get no. that from, from the CCG. So if one of you can send it to us, um, Alex, we've had issues getting um, PD vacutane is apparently it's a national supply issue. Thank okay. you for raising it. That's why these sort of um, live webinars are really helpful because we can see what's, what issues you're facing. If we can get an answer, we will. And Michelle's writing it down as we speak. So I'm sure we'll try and, um, we'll try and do that for you. Um, yeah, Fiona, you have a look and we will have a look too. And if we can get any information for you, we will certainly send out um, some solutions if we have them, or at least we can let some, it's, it's good for us to be aware because we can just push it from the, from the other angle as well, can't we? So thank you very much, everybody. It's great to have this interactive session. Um, we hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much to Lisa and to um, Michelle. And as ever, we will have this has been recorded and it'll be available later on a podcast if you want to listen again or for any of those who weren't able to join us. So we'll see you again on the 31st of August. Thanks so much, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Wessex LMCs, supporting you and your practice.